Taking up your cross, suffering and sacrificing have been superseded with name it and claim it. And as dark as I know it looks out there, the good news is that God is advancing his kingdom. It's very exciting to be a part of his great commission. It's Sheila Zelensky. The Sheila Zelensky Show, the only show to give you the truth behind the headlines, prophecy, and the deeper things of God. Now... Here is your host, end-time watchwoman, Sheila Zielinski. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this very exciting January 28th edition. Why I'm very excited for this episode is because I am about to introduce you to one of my favorite people. He used to be my former co-host, and we did quite a lot of shows together, and it is such a pleasure to introduce him to all the WWCR listeners Timothy Ball, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Sheila. I've missed uh, working with you, and so this opportunity is just great. Well, I was very excited to have you back on the program, and specifically, I want to say congratulations, Tim, on your one-year anniversary on your amazing book, The Deliberate Corruption of Climate Science. It was very timely, and I think the one of the things uh, we have to really look at is the fact that this global green agenda is really ramping up into full speed so i think it's very timely and uh, of course i've got a link on my website folks get a copy of this book the deliberate corruption of climate science incredible book and again just so people know they might not know this timothy ball is a renowned climatologist who has been very instrumental in bringing down climate gate exposing some of this anthropogenic global warming we had a debate of course as you know about six months ago with christopher keating and of course you know we we saw that that was an absolute ridiculous platform is all he would do is you know he'd regurgitate john hansen and nasa's data so i mean we know how corrupt this that, that's like really saying well here's a book that the un put out so here's my proof so isn't that ridiculous tim well it is and 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 what you find out after you've been in these issues for as long as i have and by the way i started uh, studying climate when global cooling was the consensus so i've gone through some climate change myself but yeah the only thing you get with bigger government is bigger corruption and you see that at the united nations and we will talk about that as we go through about why the people chose the un for this vehicle to use climate uh, for a political agenda the corruption at the, at the united nations is absolutely incredible i remember back in the 80s i just a very quick study i did and uh, discovered that at that time, if they just canceled first-class air travel for the United Nations, they'd save $480 million a year. So it gives you an idea of how corrupt these people are. Well, and here's the interesting thing is that people are still, although there has been a tremendous awakening occurring the last, I would say, four or five years. I mean, I was awake when nobody was. And so that was really yeah. interesting to try to be, you know, we did shows and people would kind of write us off as tinfoil hat kooks. But now you have the very prevalent awakening occurring. And I think that's very exciting because people are starting to really understand how nefarious and insidious these people are. These people really are the devil incarnate. And one of the things where I want to jump into, you mentioned the UN 
these very nefarious tentacles of the green agenda. I want you to take us back to the Club of Rome and an interesting man named Maurice Strong and sort of walk us through the origins of how this got started and really lead us up to where we are today. Yeah, I think interesting is is a, a, a stronger word than he deserves. I have other words for him, but this is a family program. One of the things that, of course, and, and by the way, what's happening now, Sheila, as you said, we were on to this a long time ago. Now the public are, are starting to catch up with it because, as my grandmother used to say, your sins will find you out. It's so true uh, that um, – but there's also a, a proverb, by the way, that says, truth never dies. It just lives a lonely existence. And so um, we're. this is what why you have to stick to the truth, stick to the message. But back to your question about uh, Maurice Strong and the United Nations, and there's a great irony going on right now, which we might get around to talking about, with the Pope coming out saying that he supports the UN position on global warming and climate change, because the original idea of this use of weather and climate for controlling a political agenda was that the world was overpopulated and that we had to reduce the world population. Now, the idea started with Malthus back in in the 19th century, and he wrote a book called Essays on Population. And it's a very interesting book because it's one of the places where you start to see the attack on religion. And um, in Malthus's book, and, and it's interesting because he, he actually was in the church as, as a minister, but um, that didn't seem to bother him at all. But what he was arguing was that the world population would outgrow the food supply. And his the theme of the book was that the government were uh, contradicting nature by creating programs for the poor and providing assistance for the poor, which he felt was encouraging them to have unnecessary and unwanted children. And very few people know that side about the Malthus story because the academics pick up, oh, Malthus was on to this. He knew what was going on. He's a brilliant guy. But here's the other most telling thing about the Malthus book is that the greatest supporter openly, publicly, was Charles Darwin. Darwin took a copy of Malthus's book with him on his voyage to the Galapagos on the, on the Beagle, and he wrote in very great support. Now, why? Well, because, of course, Malthus was saying, look, there's natural, natural selection under my rules and my, my view of, of evolution is that only the fittest survive and that this is the whole basis of it. Now, the reason I mentioned Darwin and and Malthus and religion at this point is because Darwin, who became an atheist and died an atheist, was used. He 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 wouldn't have been happy to, with this, although he wouldn't have opposed it. Was used by science to defeat religion, and we saw that in the Stokes Monkey Trial in Tennessee back in the 30s. And what happened at that trial was a teacher was teaching creationism in the classroom. And uh, the, the school system and the science people took that teacher to court. And the court ruled that he could no longer teach creationism in the classroom, that he could only teach Darwin's theory of evolution. Well, to me, that that is so ludicrous. That is that it ludicrous, goes, isn't it? Right. It, it, well, not just because it, 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 it's, uh, it, it's teaching only, uh, or not allowing creationism, but it goes against every argument that academics make about freedom and different points of view. What they did was they replaced one dogmatic position of only creationism with a, another dogmatic position of only Darwin's evolution. The reality is, as you and I know, that what should happen is all points of view should be put forward and they should be discussed. And those that create or present the most telling and reasonable arguments would, would win the debate and hold the day. But that has not happened. What's happened is they use the court system through that trial, particularly in the U.S., to force Darwin's theory of evolution on people. Now, notice, by the way, it was a theory. It's still a theory. That When it's a theory, that doesn't mean it's proved. It's just a theory. It's like Einstein's theory of relativity. Right. And people 
so so theories now at, at a certain point a theory is tested in the real world by real examples and at some point it becomes a law so just to illustrate for the listeners the um uh, uh, newton wrote the theory of gravity but over time it gradually made accurate predictions and that's the key to science can it predict accurately and so they didn't say well you know it's been a theory long enough we're going to start calling it a law it just gradually as the predictions uh, turned out to be correct it became a law sometime in in the middle of the 19th century well darwin's theory is still a, is still a theory because it hasn't been proven there's, and, and in fact, Darwin himself, almost on his deathbed, said, I was wrong. He acknowledged more than other people all the limitations of his so-called theory. So what happened was that the Club of Rome, which is a group of very, very influential people in the world, power elite, uh, you know, the, the uh, Prince Philip and all these other people. And by the way, a very important point here, Sheila, everybody says, follow the money. It's all about the money. Yes, it is about the money for the middle and lower classes, but it isn't about the money for people at this level. They have all the money they need. It's not about the money. It's about the power. The power is the thing that corrupts. And, of course, we've got Lord Acton's famous comment that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The sentence that followed that, by the way, which never gets quoted, or hardly ever gets quoted, I can say never, but hardly ever gets quoted, he said, and most great men are bad men. That is, a, to me, is the most telling part of that. But anyway, science had, had, had used Darwin to, to defeat religion, and that triggered a whole series of issues. And, and by the way, that's why you see the Darwin argument and Darwin being pushed by people like Richard Dawkins, God is dead, and all of those arguments, it started back in 1859 when Darwin published his his Origin of Species. And so this is behind the whole thing. Now, the Club of Rome took Malthus's idea that there are too many people on the planet. The world is overpopulated. But the second part of it was that that population is growing so rapidly that it's going to outgrow the resources. Now, Malthus only restricted it to food supply. Of course, it's been shown to be completely false. The problem in today's world is not an inability to produce food. The problem is the ability to store the food and distribute it uh, in some sort of market system. Because the world's population is, is around 6 billion, but we grow enough food every year to feed 26 billion people. The production is not the problem. Malthus was completely wrong on that. But the Club of Rome took that idea that the world was overpopulated and the population that existed, particularly the developed population, that is the advanced uh, uh, population of the world, was uh, exploiting and, and using the resources at an unsustainable rate. And I use that term unsustainable deliberately because that's where the phrase sustainable development came in. This is one of the catchwords that the Club of Rome people created. And, of course, when you start to think about that phrase, as I have and I did many years ago, it's a perfect political phrase because it means everything to everyone and nothing to anyone. Well, and it's important that people understand that Thomas Malthus believed the population growth would exceed resource growth, leading to catastrophic checks on overpopulation. And as a solution, he urged moral restraint. Interesting. You know, he insisted people must practice abstinence and even sterilization. So in other words, he mused that people are, they're simply useless eaters and they should be eradicated from the globe. And an interesting article, Tim, of Faith Among Neo, these neo-Malthusian greenies is that the world is getting far too crowded and something's gotta be done and it's playing straight from Marx's manifesto playbook because we know that Paul Ehrlich good old Stanford University professor he long opined that there are just far too many people acquiring far too many resources and what did he come out with this good old population bomb yep 1972. And by the way, he also uh, co-authored uh, a book called Eco uh, Science 
about population and resources. And his co-author was John Holdren, who is Obama's science czar. Good old Obama's hand-picked science czar. Hand-picked science czar, <laughs> exactly. Ex- exactly. And by the way, that idea that you mentioned about Malthus um, was reiterated, you know, the idea that people would just... Uh, proliferate in numbers uh, uh, without control, that they were they were useless people and didn't know what they were doing. The Pope kind of reiterated that recently when he said, well, you know, they can have, they should have children, but they shouldn't procreate like bunnies. <laughs> can, um, can you imagine a Pope making a comment like that? And I mean, it's absolutely incredible. But anyway, the Club of Rome then picked up on Malthus's idea and, as you said, became Neo-Malthusians. And they expanded the idea that the world would outgrow all of the resources, but they put bet, hedged bets on it. In other, what they did was they said the developed nations, that is the ones using industry and fossil fuels, which have improved the quality of life and extended life, they were the ones that were the real threat, the real problem, and they were the ones that, that had to be shut down or controlled. And Maurice Strong, who started out, and his background is very interesting because he was born in Oak Lake, Manitoba. I've talked to people that grew up with him, that, that uh, knew the family, uh, people that have worked with him, for him, and, and against him, and so on. But the family was a very, very strongly socialist family. In fact, his sister has been a declared Marxist throughout her whole life. And, of course, that's what Maurice Strong came out of. At 15, he left home, went to the States, became a very successful uh, industrialist, made a lot of money, became effectively what we would call a capitalist. But all along, his socialist tendencies were there. And when he joined the Club of Rome, of course, he brought that with him. And there he ran into like-minded people, socialism in the sense that government and big government is the only way that that, uh, things can be run, that only people like Maurice Strong know what's good for you. And it's, it's the same idea, for example, that people forget that Hitler was a socialist. The National Socialist Party. That's where the word Nazi came from. But Strong took all those ideas and he was in the Club of Rome in a very telling interview. A woman by the name of Elaine Dewar, D-E-W-A-R. She wanted to write a book praising environmentalists. Cloak of Green, right? Cloak of Green, exactly. That's that's the one. She wanted to write this book praising these people because she, you know she saw them as as doing the right thing. And of course, what she didn't realize was what you and I have long discovered that these people believe that only they care about the environment. That no, the rest of us don't care about the environment at all, or that God didn't care about the environment. And and so she started to write this book to praise these people, people like David Suzuki, Elizabeth May, and our friend Maurice Strong. But she did her homework properly. She was a true journalist, and there aren't many left in today's world. But as she dug into these people, she discovered that they were more corrupt, they were more biased, they were more directed by a political agenda than any of the people that they were attacking. And so she started the book with a particular idea, and her research showed her that completely the opposite was true. Now, that's the way you do journalism, and that's the way you do science. You start with a hypothesis, and then you set out to get all the data to to disprove it. She found that it did disprove it, that her thesis was wrong, that these people were not good people, that all they were about was control, power and control. And she said, well, what are you going to do then? And he said, well, I'm going to go to the United Nations where I can get all the money I want and not be accountable to anybody. And there's the story about the United Nations. And, of course, that's precisely what he did. But the power is the issue. Conrad Black, who was, of course, put in jail by the United States for corrupt dealings in the business world because he ran afoul of that establishment, he was asked, why aren't you in politics? And his answer was, I don't need to be. Just says everything you need to know about the political system. But anyway, Maurice Strong then did what he told Elaine Dewar he was going to do. And by the way, she, after five days at the United Nations with him, following him around, she said that 
Strong is using the United Nations for his own goal of world governance, one world governance. And, and of course, that's precisely what he did. He set up the United Nations Environment Program, incredibly manipulative person. He could persuade anybody about anything. He knew how to create bureaucratic structures, and that's key to what's going on today. He knew how to use those and set them up better than anybody. Because, of course, as Mary McCarthy, the American political commentator, once said, bureaucracy, the rule of nobody, the modern form of despotism, and that's exactly what we've got. How do you get at those faceless bureaucrats in Washington? How do you get at those faceless bureaucrats in, in, in Geneva? And, and, of course, the answer is you don't. And the politicians can't because they come in with their new ideas, and the bureaucrat sits there and says, okay, you're going to be gone in four years or eight years, and I'll still be here. So they just wait them out. And, by the way, that's one of the arguments against term limits, because then you turn over these politicians who are challenging quicker and the bureaucrat wait is, is shortened. But uh, Strong then went to the United Nations. He organized the United Nations Environment Program, out of which came all of those catchphrases like sustainable development for one world government and so on. And, and um, in the United Nations Program, which he brought to the public in 1992 – at the Rio conference, because what Strong did was he very cleverly invited all the non-government organizations like Greenpeace and Sierra Club and all of these others. And to give you an idea, at the most recent climate conference in Lima, Peru, over 50% of the people attending and participating were from those non-government organizations. They represented their own little group. No, Nobody else. They didn't represent the public. There was nobody there representing business, for example. So Strong knew how to set all of this up and organize this. Now, let, let's just step aside here for a second, Sheila, because remember what he said, what Strong said, the industrial nations are the problem, and it's our duty to get rid of them. Now, think about this. How would you do that? How would you go about getting rid of industrialized nations? You could – if and the analogy I like to get help people understand this is think about that industrialized nation like the engine of a car because that essentially is what it is. They're both running on fossil fuels, right? Now, you can stop the engine by shutting off the fuel supply. But if you did that with a nation, people would scream immediately that the impact would be so dramatic and so frightening that everybody would rise up against it. Right. So politicians or leaders and people like Strong knew that they, they're not going to do it that way. But there's another way that you can stop a car engine. You can plug the exhaust. If you plug the exhaust, the engine will quit. Now, that's what Strong chose to do. Now, how did he plug the exhaust? He said, well, okay, you burn fossil fuels. What's the byproduct, the major byproduct of burning fossil fuels? And the answer was CO2. Okay, so he said, if we can show that CO2, the byproduct of these fossil fuel burning vehicles, the nation or the car, if we can show that CO2 is causing runaway global warming, then we can convince people that they've got to stop using those fossil fuels and thereby effectively shut down the industry. That's the procedure by which he did it. And, and of course, that's the thing that people need to think about is in this incredibly complex system that we call weather, where you've got the sun and you've got uh, all the oceans and everything else affecting the weather, they focused on one very, very minute part of the total system, and that is CO2. And to give you an idea of how small a part it is, very essential gas, of course, as you know, we'll talk about in a minute. This is really important. Think about this quote, folks. This is not Dr. Timothy Ball and Sheila Zelinsky saying this. This is these people saying it. Maurice Strong said this phrase, people can put that in an internet search, isn't the only hope for the planet that the industrialized civilizations collapse? And isn't it our responsibility to bring that about? Now, I want to go a little further with this because the Club of Rome said, in searching for a new enemy to unite us, 
we came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine, and the like would fit the bill. All these dangers are caused by human intervention. And thus, the real enemy then is humanity itself, namely a common adversary in order to realize world government. It does not matter if this common enemy is a real one or a perceived one. All these guys like Paul Watson, founder of Greenpeace, says it doesn't matter what is true. It only matters what people believe is true. Good old Al Gore, buddy. I believe it's appropriate to have an overrepresentation of factual presentations on how dangerous it is. A predicate for opening up the audience to listen to what the solutions are and how hopeful it is that we are going to solve this crisis. And, of course, your favorite pal, Stephen Snyder of Stanford, said, Of course, you know, we have to offer up scary scenarios, make simplified, dramatic statements, and make little mention of any doubts we must have. Timothy Wirth, he was a former elected Democratic senator, We've got to ride the global warming issue. Even if the theory of global warming is wrong, we still are doing the right thing in terms of environmental policy. And I could go on and on and on. Isn't that stunning? They needed an issue that transcended national boundaries because they didn't, they wanted to control all the nations of the world. And they knew that nations would resist them. So if they could go to the people and say, look, your own government is not paying heed to the problem, you must get rid of that government. That's why it had to be something like uh, CO2 and and climate. It had to be a, a global issue. Now, remember, Sheila, that the idea of nation states had really only come in, ironically, with the United Nations. Because it was back after the Treaty of Versailles and Woodrow Wilson and his old idea that every nation that is a cultural group with similarities had the right to have their own state. So now these people are moving beyond that and saying, okay, we had the nation state, but that's not working because they're not paying attention. Uh, We need a centralized government. We need one world government. And so a CO2, global warming became a perfect vehicle to transcend that nationalism. Uh, So that that's really what was going on here. Now, once Maurice Strong set up that Rio conference in 92, and he got all of these non-government organizations involved and ostensibly this was presented, oh, well, we're listening to the people. They weren't. The people were just being used, as is always the case in any socialist government. The sheeple, I think, is the phrase you like to use for them. Um, and by the way, I notice the father of that, the hero, Kyle, in, in American Sniper, uh, he came out and said, look, there were three people involved in this issue. There was the um, the bad government that were leading the, the sheep astray. And so you had the shepherd who was leading the sheep in the wrong direction, the sheep that were following. But then the sniper's job was to be the sheepdog and to direct the sheep in the right direction. So it's a very interesting analogy. But anyway, Strong then set up the United Nations uh, Environment Program, and he transferred almost word for word in many cases those quotes that you had from the, um, the Club of Rome in that, that book in 1974 by King, and it became Agenda 21. That's the political vehicle for taking these ideas of one world government forward, that only one world government can deal with the issues facing the world beyond the climate issue. As you mentioned, they listed pollution, they listed waters, the next one coming up, they're working on that, and so on. But they focused specifically on CO2 at that conference under something that was called the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the UNFCCC. And this is where Strong's, I use the word genius, but you can have evil geniuses as well. This is where his genius came in. And again, I'm going to step aside so people can put this into context of how people are controlled and how people like Strong use these vehicles. I used to think that commissions of inquiry were great ideas. There was conflict and people were looking at the politicians for leadership, political quagmire, because they knew whatever they said would put them on one side of the issue or the other, and they might lose the majority or the vote. 
And so they played politics with it, and they looked for a way out. Well, the way out, as I discovered, was, oh, well, we'll have a commission of inquiry. And everybody heaved a sigh of relief and said, oh, great, it's going to be a completely independent, a non-political group looking at it. It was anything but. And I can say this because I learned how wrong I was about thinking commissions of inquiry were the solution after being appointed to my first commission of inquiry. And it happened to be over a dispute over water in a lake. And that's an issue that, by the way, people will kill over water. And what happened was that the minute the politicians said, oh, we're going to have a commission of inquiry, they're off the hook. Because now the media or anybody can go to them and say, well, what, what's your view on? Oh, no, no, I can't say anything till I've heard from the commission of inquiry. So now they're they're off the political hook. And they then go back into their legislatures and they write the terms of reference they define the terms of the commission of inquiry and through that they dictate and determine the outcome of that commission of inquiry now just to take my specific personal example the terms of reference we got from the minister on that particular inquiry were so narrow that there was only one conclusion you could reach So I said to the chairman, I said, Mr. Duncan, you go to the minister and tell him that unless we get carte blanche, completely open files, access to all the data, all the information, I'm going to go to the media and say, you're trying to predetermine the outcome of this inquiry. Well, at that point, of course, the minister decided that that was a bigger political threat to him than trying to limit me and and the commission of inquiry. So we got all of the files. And guess what? We discovered there'd been three previous commissions of inquiry and they'd recommended all of the solutions and none of them had been acted on because they were done simply to take that politician off the hook at the time. And in fact, there was a letter from an engineer from 1876 saying, look, here's the problems with this lake and here's the solutions and nothing had been done. This is how I learned how a commission of inquiry is controlled. And just to illustrate my point, the greatest conspiracy discussions, and notice, by the way, that they they say about people like you and me, oh, they're conspiracy theorists. We are climate deniers. But here's the funny thing. (laughs) I've never denied the climate changes. In fact, I know it's been changing since the inception of God creating it. But here's the kicker. As Al Gore said, I love how the vernacular changes. At first, it was global warming, then it was climate change, but now, Tim, it's a climate crisis, and we are climate deniers. Yeah. Well, of course, you see, what happened was that when it was global warming, we were called global warming skeptics. And and I said, yeah, I'm, I'm a skeptic. All scientists are skeptic. But again, this is that clever play on words, because the public view a skeptic is somebody who just questions everything. And, you know, you just don't listen to them because they're going to disagree with everything. You have to disagree with a scientific hypothesis. When Maurice Strong's group came out and said, look, CO2 is causing warming and the CO2 levels will increase because humans, uh, industrial nations are producing more CO2. Therefore, we're going to have runaway global warming. That was a hypothesis or a speculation what normally happens in science is other scientists then challenge that they try to prove it wrong but what happened in this case was any scientist like myself that tried to say hang on a minute i got problems with that oh don't listen to him he's a skeptic wait tim i thought the science was settled (laughs) that is the mantra of al gore and all these cronies is we're not going to debate because the science is settled actually tim the science is un settling. Every single time this good old subterfuge, the old hockey stick, every time somebody put in a set of data, it would produce a hockey stick more than 99% of the time, despite what you fed into it. Well, of course, that's like these commissions of inquiry. You see, you set the rules so that you always get the result that you want, no matter what you put into it. And that's what they did with the hockey stick. They've done it with everything. They've done it with all of these issues. Well, and it's always this very, very malevolent agenda disguised as a benevolent one for the greater good. Because you got to realize, people, in a nutshell, you better start understanding what Agenda 21 is because it calls for dramatically increasing urbanization and forcing populations out of the rural areas into these densely populated massive mega cities complete with the stack and pack micro apartments controlled by technocrats with the ability to control 
every aspect of one person's life. So when completed, Tim, it, yep. this we're talking about subjugation by stealth, and it's really what I call hell on earth. you got to yep. remember, listen to this. Peter Founder, 1990, look it up, Ingrid Newkirk. Humans have grown like a cancer. We're the mm-hmm. biggest blight on the face of the earth. And David Foreman, founder of Earth First, Club of Roman Bilderberg members, says phasing out the human race will solve every problem on Earth, social and environmental. Even for Prince Philip to make the incredible statement, he actually said this, and again, these are things people can look up. He said, if I were reincarnated, I would wish to be returned to the Earth as a killer virus to wipe out the human population levels. Now, listen, how does somebody even get away with saying something like that, Tim? Well, of course, because the society are not aware of these things, and they and they put these people up on pedestals. I don't mind Prince Philip's idea, but let me decide who will get wiped out first. And in, in Can that we case, start with Al Gore yeah. and Prince Philip first? Well, of course, we start out <laughs> with all those extreme environmentalists. But you see, this is this is what uh, the these people are after: is that they want total control and whatever it takes. But the other thing that you're pointing the finger at here uh, that's very important is there is a very deep-seated anti-humanity in the whole environmental movement. Yes. And it is those people are the nuisance. So get rid of those people. And, and of course, that goes back to uh, the population issue again. But just just to put that in some perspective and, and to, to give an idea to people of how they pull these things off, and, and by the way, your comment about uh, the science is settled, the debate is over. Al Gore made both those comments in a single presentation to the U.S. Congress. And they allowed him to appear before them, and they broke every rule in their own book. That's the duplicity of these politicians. Because I know, having appeared before Congress, you have to submit what you're going to say. It has to be approved. It's got to be in by a certain time. You're only allowed a limited amount of presentation time. Gore never presented anything. He just walked in and started talking. Let's not forget he was given an Oscar and a Nobel. Yeah, he got the the Oscar. I, I happen to think he deserved the Oscar because it was made. The, the movie was made in Hollywood, and it was pure propaganda. Well, but here's the the thing: he's yeah. found guilty in a court, having yeah. had nine major errors in his propaganda film. It wasn't. It was deemed that it wasn't science, but rather propaganda. When Justice Burton ruled that it wasn't to be showed with children without actually being shown something like, well, your tremendously amazing documentary that folks has posted on WeCanVigilante.com is the great global warming swindle. I think that is imperative that people see the other side of this. I mean, the movie was a brilliant piece of propaganda, and I'm sure Lena yeah. Riefenstahl would have salivated over it. <laughs> right, right. And But for the listeners, by the way, Riefenstahl was the, the, the filmmaker who documented for Hitler. She made all the movies of praising Hitler. She claimed she wasn't a Nazi, but, you know, I mean, she sold her soul to, to make those movies. And uh, the one about the superiority of the white race with the 1936 Olympics and so on. But let's, let's, um, let's focus on this anti-humanity thing because we've already mentioned the name of John Holdren. And I mentioned the book that uh, he published with Paul Ehrlich called Eco-Science, Population, Resources, Environment. Well, in that book, he was advocating for extreme totalitarian measures to control the population. Right now, think about that extreme totalitarian measures. What did he propose? Forced abortions, mass sterilization, and a planetary regime with the power of life and death over the citizens. That's what he wanted. And here's some of the things that they identified in, in the book that women could be forced to abort their pregnancies whether they wanted to or not. The population at large could be sterilized by infertility drugs intentionally put into the nation's drinking water or in food. Single mothers and teen mothers should have their babies seized from them against their will and given away to other couples to raise. People who contribute to social deterioration, and you can read that to mean undesirables, can be required by law to exercise reproductive responsibility. And that we go back to the Pope's comment about, well, you don't breed like rabbits, you know. But here's the thing. People say, well, how would you do that? Well, here's what Holdren said in the book. 
He says, indeed, it has been concluded that compulsory population control laws, even including laws requiring compulsory abortion, could be sustained under the existing constitution if the population crisis became sufficiently severe to endanger the society. So what he's saying is, well, we can do it under the constitution, but that's not really what he's saying. It sounds like that, but this is the way they play the game. Because you see, it says it can be done under the constitution if the population crisis became sufficiently severe to endanger the society. Well, who decides that? And the answer is, of course, John Holdren does. The government does. Okay, so what what they're saying is, well, we can use the Constitution once we've proved to you that if we don't do it, the whole society's finished. So it's, it's a classic circular argument. It's frighteningly clever. Of course, you, you see that kind of argument used in all the Nazi literature. It's, it's, it's hidden in the things that you pointed out. Oh, well, we're saving the planet. And you see that all the time in today's debate. Oh, well, oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, liberty and freedom is very important. Oh, but we've got to stop terrorism. We've got to protect you. We don't like doing this, but, you know, and, and so they've got all of these very clever. We don't, we really don't like doing this, but we have no choice because we know what's good for you. That underlines all of these, um, these particular issues. Now, by the way, Holdren, when he came up for um, appointment as Obama's science czar, he was asked whether he still held these views. And of course, what's he going to say? He's going to say, no, I don't, I've changed my mind. Well, I don't care if he's changed his mind by 75%. The 25% is still frightening. This is the man that's controlling the global warming issue, the climate issue, and uh, the abortion issues and everything else in the Obama White House. Well, and what's even more nefarious, though, is at the heart of this, it's really a revival of paganism that rejects Christianity that really is the very cunning mix of science paganism and Eastern mysticism and feminism that has woven itself into this pantheistic cult of this new new religion, essentially. Al Gore in his book, Earth in the Balance, I mean, he talks about the fact that Christianity is really the only thing standing in the way of the revival of this Gaia worship. I mean, that's really at the heart of today's environmental policy. The religious conviction is that, after all, a rock has more rights than you, Tim, and we need to be bowing down to Mother Gaia. You've seen the image of Gaia. Look no further than your Starbucks coffee cup. Mother Gaia or Mother Earth, the fount of life, the Earth goddess, is really a revival of a Nimrodian paganism. Oh, exactly. Now, think back to what we talked about earlier in the program when I talked about science using Darwin to defeat religion, right? Because that was the big battle that was going on at that time, was religion was controlling how people thought, what they did, and so on. But it, but they were, it was being done because it was, it was God. Well, and remember it, it was, that Maurice Strong, yeah. or did we just talked about how he founded the UN Environmental Program, he yeah. actually issued a dictum. It was an environmental Sabbath that was setting aside a day of the week as a rest day for Earth. I mean, give me a break. Okay, we had Earth Day. It was created by Paul Ehrlich. Okay, and not only that, but when does what, what day is Earth Day? It's Marx's birthday. Well, and let's not forget that Marx was a self-professed Satanist. I mean, this whole agenda is right out of the bells of hell. Okay, now what's happened, as we mentioned, Darwin defeating religion, and where did he do that? He did that in academia, and the academics picked up on Darwin, and, and of course, science becomes dominant. We talked about the Stokes Monkey Trial, and, and Darwin's theory of evolution was the only one that was acceptable, but that created a problem, and the problem it created was, okay, if there is no God then why are we here? And then equally important, why are humans different than all the other animals? Now, that was a problem that Darwin didn't know how to deal with. And he dealt with it initially by ignoring it. So when he published The Origin of Species, he never mentions humans at all. Now, there was another guy 
in, in the history of science by the name of Alfred Russell Wallace. And Wallace actually sent Darwin a 42-page paper in which he outlined the evolutionary ideas that Darwin had. And Darwin's friends, of course, said, hey, you better get published, otherwise this guy's going to beat you to it. And so Darwin then published The Origin of Species. Now, what was Wallace saying? Wallace was saying, look, if you're going to look at this issue, the one thing you've got to deal with is the enormous gap between all animals and plants and humans. Human abilities are so dramatically different. Humans are the only ones that are self-aware, that have self-consciousness, and no other animal has that. And so by defeating religion, Darwin got rid of the God being our reason for being here. So then the, the, the world is, and the academics are having to say, well, well, we've got to find an explanation for how humans are different than all the other animals. Oh, well, we use Darwin's evolutionary theory. So when you go and read Richard Dawkins, God is Dead, he effectively talks about Darwin as if he was God. I mean, it's frightening to read this, to what this man is writing. And also, let's not forget yep. that on his, de- on his deathbed, yep. Darwin admitted that, what did he admit? Well, that yep. he was wrong. Yep. Well, of course, that's when most atheists start to get to doubts about, about what's going on, right? So what happened was in the universities, in Darwin's day, and we'll just look at, say, Oxford and the Bodleian Library, a wonderful piece of Palladian architecture, and one of the great libraries of the world, there are three doors to that library. There's the door to the natural sciences, okay, which is biology and chemistry and so on. And then there's the door to the humanities, which is literature and music and art and so on. The other door, the third door, is the entrance to the library. There's one door missing. And in today's university, it's the biggest door into the university, and it over it, it says social sciences. Now, think about the contradiction of that term. You see, the academic said, hey, we've got to replace religion uh, for an explanation of why humans are so different from all the other animals. Well, that's what social sciences is about. It spent its whole time since Darwin's time trying to explain in natural evolutionary theory why we're different from all the other animals, and it doesn't work. It simply doesn't work. A thing that I like to do for the public, the discipline of anthropology, which supposedly is studying the evolution of humans, and they go through all of the different stages. And the anthropologists at each stage of human evolution, they're trying to separate human evolution from other animals, particularly the other apes. So they define us as, as the, the species or, or genus homo, that's man, which is in the collective t- t- sense of man and women. And so initially they said what makes us different from the other animals is we could walk upright, particularly the other apes. So they called us homo erectus. But then they found that other apes were walking upright, not necessarily for long periods of time, but certainly um, walking upright. So they scrapped that idea and they said, well, what makes us different is that we can make tools. And so they called the human species then Homo habilis, man the tool maker. Well, then along comes Jane Goodall. And by the way, at, at, at one point in my career, I gave a, a talk prior to her making a presentation. But Goodall comes along and shows chimpanzees creating tools to get at ants in a, in a, or termites in a nest. And we've got other examples now of animals making tools. So they said, well, that doesn't make us different from the other animals. So then they said, what makes us different is that we can think conceptually. Now, what that means is that you can take two ideas and from them create a third idea, right? That's conceptual thinking. The academics argue that that's what makes us wise, which is a very arrogant uh, assumption. So they called us in Latin homo sapiens. Sapiens is, is wisdom, the wise ape, okay? Well, the problem with that was that they did experiments and they put chimpanzees in a very large room with a very high ceiling and they hung bananas from the ceiling and they put boxes in the corner and it didn't take the chimpanzees long to drag the boxes to the middle, pile them up, get the bananas. So, oh, well, that doesn't make us unique from these other apes. So then 
people find this hard to believe, but absolutely true, because I've spent many times talking with anthropologists about that. They decided that what made us different than the other animals is we could tell lies. Now, think about the implications of that for religion and Christianity and, and God and, and the morality of all of that we're talking about here. They said that what made us different that w- was that we could tell lies. And the anthropologists decided that to tell a lie, you had to have two phases. You had to think of the truth and then a way around the truth. Okay? A double concept. So then they changed the name of the human species to Homo sapiens sapiens. I prefer to call it sap squared. And I used to tell my students, look, when you're born, you don't tell lies. You gradually learn how to say why. And then when you learn how to tell lies, now you're an adult, okay? And if you haven't learned to tell lies by the time you're an adult, the first time you fill out a government form, it'll make a liar out of you because otherwise you won't get what you want or need from the government. Right now, what happened, and people can look this up. There was a good report on it in National Geographic. They had taught a gorilla American Sign Language, AMSLAN as it's called. The gorilla had developed a vocabulary and was actually starting to make sentences, three-word sentences. And they were watching this gorilla through one-way glass, and the gorilla was playing with a toy that they'd given it. The toy broke. The gorilla hid the toy. They went into the gorilla and asked the gorilla, who broke the toy? And the gorilla pointed at the other gorilla. <laughs> okay? So now, suddenly, the anthropologists and academic world are stuck because now, hey, well, look here, this gorilla's telling lies too. So that doesn't make us different from the other apes either. So in my discussion, particularly with a Christopher Micklejohn, who was an anthropologist at the university where I taught, I said, well, what's the latest thinking? And he said, well, the latest thinking is that what makes us different from the other animals is that we can think about an afterlife, that we can think about death. And my immediate response to that was, well, Chris, isn't that where we came in? Isn't that religion, right? And so here you've got... Since Darwin, 147 years or so of social sciences trying to show uh, how humans are different, only to prove that what makes us different is that we can think about a religion, about God. Isn't that a great irony in, in all of this? Now, there's another part to this, and it comes back to what we started talking about at the beginning. Because the young people now don't have the religious base particularly in, in, in North America and Western Europe, Europe and so on. They, they, they don't have religion. I learned the extent to which that is true when in teaching a very large class, which I like to do, and I, the, the good Lord gave me an ability to teach big, large classes, and I love to get them on the edge of their seats. And I said something, you know, it was true, but it was a little bit outrageous. And one of the students who got, I obviously got him caught up in this, he suddenly shouts out, I don't believe you. And I stopped, and the class, of course, they're thinking, oh, he's dead. <laughs> the red pencil is going to descend on him. He'll fail the course for sure. And, uh, yeah, the, the red pencil sort of Damocles, as I used to call it. So I let the class settle down, and I said, well, what don't you believe, Thomas? And he looked at me, and he said, my name isn't Thomas. I said, I know that. How many in the class, and this is a class of about 300 students, how many of the class know what I'm referring to. I think there were at most a half a dozen that knew that I was talking about doubting Thomas in the Bible, in the biblical stories. And it absolutely stunned me. And I discovered that that, lar- that class, 300 of art students taking a science credit course, the only time they went to the church or even approached a church was for weddings or funerals. They had nothing to do with religion at all. So what happened with Darwin was you eliminated God and, and the reason for us being here. You replace it with the social sciences, but that doesn't explain anything. I mean, the number of students that take first-year psychology thinking, oh, I'm going to learn about who I am and, and, and uh, how I behave and uh, understand human nature, and they find out it isn't that at all. In fact, I refer to first-year psychology or psychologists as the odds studying the id. And so they're in a moral vacuum. And now comes along environmentalism. 
and they adopted that as the new religion. Environmentalism has become the new religion. The new world religion. The new the world green religion. Gospel and the name of our book, Tim, that's going to be out this spring. It really yep. is a new religion for a new age, isn't it? It's exactly. essentially replaced Christianity. This really, think about this, folks. The lie of human-induced, or as Tim and I have called it, anthropogenic climate change, was first hatched many decades ago, and it has nothing to do with science or saving the planet or the environment. It's not about saving the planet, is it, Tim? No, it, it's all about a control of the people on the planet uh, for a political agenda. Bingo. And, and of course, that Morris Strong knew that. That's why he set it up. And by the way, one of the things I didn't mention was that when he set up Agenda 21, that was the political side of the issue. On the other side, through that UNFCCC that I referenced, he set up the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and they were directed to provide the scientific support for the proof that human CO2 was causing the problem. And how did he do that? Well, the definition that the IPCC were given was you are only to look at human causes of climate change. That's that's the terms of reference that they were given. Now, you cannot possibly identify any effect that humans may be having on the global climate unless you understand and know natural causes of climate change. But we don't. And yet they come along and they say, oh, well, well our scientists, our science shows, our computer models show. Yeah, but your computer models are, are designed to, to prove something. You know, it used to be with a computer model, it was garbage in, garbage out. Now it's become, with the climate models, gospel in, gospel out, because it's the gospel of uh, Maurice Strong and the Club of Rome and Agenda 21. And so by defining climate change for them as only human causes, that's how they forced it down to only looking at CO2. Now, I mentioned that CO2 earlier in the program that it, the so-called greenhouse gases, that is these gases in the atmosphere that allow the sunlight in but slow down the rate at which heat is escaping, which causes the earth to warm up, CO2 is only 4% of the total greenhouse gases. Water vapor is 95%. It never gets mentioned. Why? Because they say, oh, well, humans are not putting water vapor into the atmosphere, therefore we don't have to look at it. But it's only got to vary by a fraction of 1% to change the global temperature, but they're not even looking at it. That's how they narrowed what they were looking at. And Maurice Strong set up the IPCC then through the World Meteorological Organization, which is an agency of the United Nations in which every national weather office or weather agency belongs to that. They're the ones that send the delegates to the IPCC. They decide who's going to be on it. They decide what the outcomes would be. So in other words, the whole thing is controlled by the bureaucrats in every nation. So in the United States, for example, the NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, they send the delegates to the UN. They then come back and push that political agenda. And if any of the politicians dare to question them, they say, hey, we're the bureaucratic sciences. You're, you're a politician. You're daring to question us. But isn't it incredible, Tim, that those pushing the global warming fraud targeted human CO2 emissions as its ostensible cause because CO2 is the God-given, natural, and necessary byproduct of the industrial activity that sustains human life. And you can see even over the past decade, their steadily built hysteria about global warming has now erupted into a full-blown public relations debacle, really. You've got Al Gore, the Pope, and intimates of the royals and all these other hedonistic hucksters that are pushing this one world climate policy. This thing is fully implemented. This is hell on earth. These evil cabal of collectivists have discovered the ultimate tool to force this diabolical new world order green religion of really Luciferian paganism upon the entire world. Yep. What did they hijack? The very air we breathe. Isn't that insidious? Yep. 
Oh, absolutely. And not only the air we breathe, but the air that the uh, plants breathe. These people are, are absolute perfect vehicles for the devil's work. Well, they are de- the devil incarnate. Tim, thank you so much for coming oh, on the program you. today. Folks, you can find Dr. Timothy Ball's website linked there at weekendvigilante.com. Thanks to all the WWCR listeners for tuning in and everyone else. The Sheila Zielinski Show is sponsored by SteveQuail.com, offering a wide variety of products, links, headlines, and information for the end times. Order Steve's new book, Little Creatures, by visiting SteveQuail.com. Dare to discover, learn, prepare, and be amazed.